Welcome to Stand Alone. I'm Sabrina Lloyd, founder and CEO of Lloyd Agencies, a multi-million dollar company that ranks as one of the most successful in the insurance industry. My passion is empowering people to become the leaders that they were meant to be. With each episode, I'll teach you how to go from ordinary to extraordinary, how to think like no one else, how to stand alone. It's time we create massive success for ourselves. Welcome. This is our standalone podcast where we really drill down deep into what it takes for someone who is, you know, ordinary to move, to become extraordinary. And when I created this group, I wanted to be able to share, you know, what has helped me along the way. And I'm letting one of uh, my secret weapons out of the bag today, but that's okay because I love the community that we're creating. And Craig Weller, he is a phenomenon because of the wealth of knowledge that he has. And, you know, I don't ask a lot of people to speak to my business, uh, Craig, but when I found your information, I was just like, this guy is onto something. You're just so deep with your knowledge. And it's something I really appreciate, especially in today's world where everything is so surface, so superficial. Um, people are looking for what is like a quick fix and mm -hmm. it really just doesn't exist. And the reason why I love this whole concept of working on the mind is because when I got into business, it was really challenging for me to learn that number one, I had to restructure my entire mind and that was going to take time. It wasn't something that was going to happen overnight. And I really took to the way the Navy trains, the way like you have a business where you specialize in training special operations forces. So, you know, to get people to get selected. And I wanted to introduce you today because what you do is not easy, you know, and that's the whole point. And that's why, you know, there's so much honor in what you do. And I have so much respect for what you do. So I want to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, Craig, you're an amazing person who I, I know your background, the story you've spoken to my business, which was phenomenal because, you know, the mark of greatness is how a person does their work, right? Work is work, but how you conduct it really demonstrates the character of the person. And for you to take that time to really learn about our business. I remember when I first reached out to you, you're like, well, let me talk to you first and see if you're a nut job or what, are, what am I dealing <laughs> with here? And we had a great first conversation. So I loved it. Mm -hmm. And so I just appreciate you being here because I think you know, people getting exposed to the right information is so important today. So the fact that you're doing this just says a lot that you care about that same mission too, because your information is the real deal. And if we can break it down for everyone today, you know, how to, how to create that mindset of being resilient, of being able to endure so that you can make it in business, you know, and how it aligns with, uh, the special operation forces, you know, that those two, they align for me very well. And, you know, in introducing you, 
I just want to thank you for, for what you do to give us the country that we are able to live in and to be free. But freedom sometimes leads to chaos if we don't mm -hmm. uh, structure ourselves properly. So if you could help to give us that structure today to, to not just say like, I want to become great. I want to do great things, but how do I go from an ordinary person with an ordinary mind to an extraordinary person with an extraordinary life and then fill in that gap for us. And I wanted to kick off the question today with you about talking about selection because in your book and guys, you know, there's some people that write books and to be honest, I'm, I'm a reader. So when I read someone's book, I know what a person has read because a lot of the stuff gets, you know, integrated into their work, but this is a piece of art here, your book. So, and you told me it took you six years to put this information yeah. together. And in May, you are coming out with a new book. So I'll make sure to tell everyone when it comes out so they can get their hands on it because the wealth of knowledge in here is incredible. And we're zoning in on one chapter today. So, and I could probably talk to you for three hours on this. So I'm going to do my best to condense it, but Craig, thank you for being here. And if you could kick us off with, you know, just a little bit about, you know, why you are, you know, equipped to be able to train because you did it yourself, right? You're not, you're not a teacher who is like armchair coaching. You actually, you, you walk the walk, which makes you so good for then selecting the next crew to be able to make it. So if you can touch on that, that would be awesome. Yeah. And that's, when I, I joined the Navy when I was still 17 years old, and I grew up in a tiny town in South Dakota, I didn't know how to swim because it wasn't really a thing where, where I grew up. We didn't have a real swimming pool. Uh, and my specific goal with it, I was the weirdly philosophical kid. Um, I wanted to hit bottom and learn who I was and practice these concepts around like strength and resilience in a real world setting so that it so that the words meant something, you know, because you can read all the books you want about what it is to be strong or what resilience means. Um, and those words don't mean anything if you've never put them to use, if you've never applied them, like you can, you can know the words for something without actually knowing what it is. And I wanted to know those things about myself. And, and <laughs> I, I chose the Navy because I knew that it would be specifically hard because I didn't know how to swim and it was kind of a foreign environment. And I underestimated how hard it was going to be. Like I thought I'd be able to pick it up faster than, than I actually did, but I squeaked by step by step. Um, I failed. I learned to swim by failing the initial screen test, which is like the bare minimum physical standards that you meet to start the pipeline. And I would fail to swim within like the first 20% of it. They'd pull me out of the water and send me to stroke development early enough in the process that I had most of that hour to do a swimming lesson and, and figure out what I was doing in my life. And I passed on my last try by about seven seconds. And from there was thrown into the special ops training pipeline where everything accelerated even more. And a lot of the workouts were near drowning experiences. Like I'd be, I would be incapable of walking physically when I got done. Like I'd have to just sit on the floor for a while and I'd go home. I lived in a barracks that was on, I think the fourth or fifth floor didn't have an elevator. It was just stairs. And I would have to take the stairs up like one flight at a time. I take one flight of stairs, sit on the floor for a while and recover, walk up the next flight of stairs and sit for a bit because I was so physically destroyed. Um, was that, but exha that exhaustion just like physically? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, mentally too, it's, it's humiliating to be the weakest person there. 
you know, like anytime someone showed up who was a worse swimmer than I was, they lasted like a day, if that two days, maybe. And it, I never had much of a respite. So I was always the one with the bullseye, you know, like the guy who needed to be weeded out. But, but I did that somewhat on purpose. I'd, I'd read this story from, I think about the 1950s when, um, when Naval Special Warfare was first coming around, there was a team, a unit called the UDTs, the underwater demolition teams. And their selection process, the initial screen test that they used at the time involved um, jumping into a swimming pool with two buckets full of rocks or bricks. And you dive down, pick up the buckets and walk them across the bottom a little bit and then set them down, swim back up, take a breath and go back down and carry the buckets for a little bit more. And most people would do this and it would take them like five to ten ups and downs carrying the buckets, taking a breath, carrying the buckets. And there's one guy who jumped in, grabbed the buckets and carried them completely across the swimming pool without taking a single breath, set them down, bolted for the surface and clawed his way out of the pool, almost unconscious, like choking and sputtering. And the instructors were initially mad at him because they thought he was just being belligerent or didn't understand what he was supposed to do or whatever. And then he explained, he said, I don't know how to swim. And they looked at him, they realized that he just, almost killed himself trying to join this unit because he didn't have the technical skill, but he had the mental raw material to be really, really uncomfortable if he had to be. And they're like, well, hell, we can teach you to swim. Welcome to the, welcome to the program. And that's the kind of thing I was looking for. I wanted to find something where the part that mattered was the raw material and your willingness to suffer through something, not the initial talents you had when you showed up or, you know, like the identity you were born into, whether you had some kind of privileged background or you're a rich kid or something like everything was just level set by how much you were willing to suffer. And that's what I wanted to find out. And that's the world that I wanted to go into. Um, and so that's kind of the process that I deliberately walked myself through. And I've always been kind of into writing. So I took a lot of notes as I went. I, I started coaching other people pretty early on based on what I'd learned and read and applied. And as you said, now that, those principles apply in a lot of other fields, including in businesses. And like you've started your own very successful business. <clears throat> and I started mm, three or four of my own as well, um, two in the fitness industry, I started a biotech company that um, currently employs about 16 people is valued at, they just closed a series A round. They're valued about 30 million or so. And they have a one and a half billion dollar grant from US SOCOM. Um, and John and I started building the elite as well. And, and we've used a lot of those same principles as we've built those businesses um, of seeking negative feedback and using it to learn, like directly facing the thing that you're bad at and trying to understand it and take it apart and become better at it. Um, like when John and I started Ethos and when I started the first gym that I started, we had um, a logbook or a journal of mistakes and negative feedback that we had. And we, we deliberately looked for everything that we did wrong in the beginning of the process so that we could correct it and build systems and procedures that accounted for those mistakes. That way we could improve day after day after day and we didn't repeat mistakes and we just evolved faster than most of our competitors. Um, the first gym that I had was in business for a year and I watched probably as in a town that had five other competitors probably. And within the first year, I think three of them went out of business, um, which is kind of a fun, like kind of a fun experience. I'd show up to work in the morning and there'd be a little note on my door asking if we wanted to buy any of their equipment because they were shutting down. And it wasn't because we were phenomenal at anything. It was just that we did all these basic things really well and better than most other people did them. 
And, and yeah, a lot of that is just based on having the raw material and being the fastest, fastest to learn. So, you know, you say this um, term raw material and, you know, so much in business, you know, we look to train people and I always tell my team, like you have to find good people, then train them, right? Like if you're trying to Mm -hmm. train on character, like there was something you had that kept you going, even though you were the worst in your class that lets you finish, even though, you know, for your story, you got pulled out of the course, you got put into buds, correct? You got, you got put into all these different uh, training programs. And then, you know, you, you still endured, you didn't get wrapped up in how you were appearing to everyone else during the process. And a lot of people, you know, especially today, and it may not be even today, we're just probably more aware of it, but there is things inside of us where we want validation, but that's not what you really have to worry about, right? What do you have the raw material? And so in reading your book, you talk about the five dimensions, right? Which I loved Mm -hmm. because when they go to select who's going to make it and who they can entrust, right? This is what business is about. When we hire someone, we're really looking at you and saying, can we entrust you with our brand, with what we're doing, with our mission, you know, that we are looking to accomplish. And it really is, it's the hardest thing to do. If we have to train that from zero to a hundred, you got to have some of the raw materials. And so when you broke down the five dimensions where you were talking about, okay, well, what are those five traits that people have, because, you know, you broke down two of them where you talked about this. And I wanted you to talk about this a little bit. Number one was conscientiousness, you know, Mm -hmm. why that has to be high for someone to make it. And then neuroticism, why that has to be low and that favors you making it, you know, so these could give us like windows into the traits and qualities that people possess And what a training program does is it really just pushes them to see what's coming out of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because in in most of these, awesome. In most of these programs, you're not going to do a written formal psych assessment. They're indirectly assessing you by, as you said, using a bunch of physical or mental, emotional stressors to just reveal who you are. And even the physical stuff is just a way of showing what's going on inside of your head. Because if you show up really physically fit, like you're never going to go and out push up the enemy in, in special operations. They, they're just using that fitness as a way of signaling that you're the kind of person who does a lot of work when nobody else is watching or making you do it. Because if you're really fit, then you've been consistently doing something hard on your own for a long time leading up to this process. And it kind of reveals something about your mindset. Um, and those two out of the, the big five personality traits, conscientiousness and neuroticism or emotional stability are, are pretty universal predictors of success in any field. Um, uh, conscientiousness in particular comes up a lot in, in any research. And there's I can't think of any field where, where low conscientiousness is a benefit. Um, Conscientiousness is basically your ability to do the right thing when the right thing is hard. It, it just means that you're self-aware that you're punctual, you show up, you do the work. And when no one is watching, you're still doing the work. 
um, you're generally internally driven and you have a high set of standards and you pay attention to details and you don't think, let things slide or rationalize um, mistakes or errors or, or acts of laziness, basically. Um, like in, in the Navy selection programs, they're looking at that through all these annoying little tests, the uniform inspections, the room inspections. You have to show up for a swim with your dive knife and your little flotation vest thing. And it all has to be perfectly clean and polished. And there's not a grain of sand on any of it, even though you're completely covered in sand every day. And the stupid knife that they give you rusts within like six hours of touching salt water and you swim around with it. So you have to constantly take care of all these little details and manage all of these things that they're deliberately destroying day after day. And you just have to keep up and make sure that all of this stuff is taken care of. And all that's doing is showing that you're the type of person who's going to take care of everything that needs to be done, even though you're tired, even though you have a million other things to do, even though like the schedule just changed. And now you have half the time you thought you did, you're still going to get it all done on time and be ready to go when it's time to move out the door. Um, and the emotional stability side of it is your ability to have a strong sense of self-identity and to not have that identity negatively affected by external factors. So you don't see things like a negative event, <clears throat> like failing a swim, making a mistake in your business, screwing something up, um, showing up and realizing that you have a lot to learn. You see that as just an external factor that's separate from your identity and it doesn't reflect on who you are as a person. So you're able to embrace that error, that learning opportunity and, and look at it with clear open eyes rather than hiding from it and pretending it doesn't exist. So you don't see negative external events as personal, permanent or pervasive. They're not a true reflection of who you are. They're just an externality. They don't, they don't reflect on everything else in your world. Like you made a mistake in this one area. That doesn't mean that you make mistakes in absolutely everything you do and you always will. It just means you made one mistake and that it's learnable and correctable and it's not pervasive. So it doesn't affect everything else that you do. And you're able to just move Craig, on and learn. You are, you are too good. You're too good. I don't even think like we have to digest all the goods that you're saying there. Like when you gave those three things, you also touched on, you know, if you could tie that in to, you talked something in the book about learned helplessness, you know, yeah, and that's how this from, yeah. So how this ties in to like how you see what is happening to you, right? Because mm -hmm. For a lot of people, when, when something happens to them, especially like when you're in business, you've got to invest in your business at the cost of performance sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I really just want to stress this because this is how skill development gets acquired, right? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people that are so concerned about how they're appearing on the outside for those instantaneous results sometimes, they're not willing to sacrifice that, you know, small dip, that small net loss that could actually acquire them higher skills uh, to, to gain an advantage for the future and grow. So when you talked about those three P's, say them again, the permanent, permanent, per permanent personal and pervasive. Yes. So, so yeah. how do those, how do those tie into like our outlook, because if the mind doesn't understand those three P's and how they are relative to ourself, then any task someone gives us, we won't pass it. Does mm -hmm. it make sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. So we can start with learned helplessness because there are like five concepts rolled into that. Um, but learned helplessness, that research initially started with they'd use dogs <laughs> and they'd put them in like a little a little square space with a metal floor. And there was a tiny barrier or a movable barrier in between the dog and, and another space. And they would send little, small, uncomfortable electrical shocks to the floor and they'd shock the dog. And they initially had the barrier high enough that there was nothing the dog could do. It couldn't escape. It, it had no power to control this situation. And they'd give them a handful of shocks over time. And they would, they would basically teach them that bad things are going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. And eventually the dogs, most of them would kind of just give up and like lay on the floor and just wait for it to happen. And then they would remove the barrier or make it very, very small so that you could just step over it so that they could, they could escape if they wanted to. But what they found was that after the dogs had been conditioned to believe that, that their situation was inescapable, they would give up and they would, adopt this idea that they were helpless to bring themselves out of this painful situation. And even when the barrier was gone, they would deliver a shock or a series of them and the dogs would just stay there and take it. Um, and there, there were a small subset that wouldn't, that would still like see that a bad thing was happening and see that there was a way to get out of it. And they would just hop the barrier and they'd be done. And they later started doing the same thing with people, but instead of shocking them, they would give them um, like impossible to solve puzzles or tests, some kind of task, like find your way out of this maze and there's not actually a way out of the maze kind of thing and put them in a place where they would find, like perceive themselves to be helpless. And they found the same thing that people who had been given a series of tasks where they weren't able to solve them or weren't able to find a way out would adopt that perspective that in the future that was going to hold true. And then they would give them a problem that was solvable. And a lot of the people would still refuse to try. They would just give up immediately on seeing the problem, even though there was a clear solution that they could get to pretty easily. And they found that a small number of people, again, wouldn't do that. They would continue trying. They would continue looking for a way out or a solution to the problem. And they found that that was due to that attributional style, the, the three Ps of personal, permanent, and pervasive. So at first, when you're given this puzzle and you can't solve it, do you tell yourself that it's just because of the specific nature of this puzzle? Or is it because of who you are as a person and that you're always incapable of solving puzzles and it's because of something that's fun fundamentally wrong with you and it's going to be true of any other puzzle that you ever see yeah you say and, like i'm not a puzzle person yeah 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 <laughs> i'm just not i'm just not cut out for this problem solving thing it's just it's just who i am and and those were the people who would give up and then even though a solvable problem was placed in front of them they wouldn't try and and they would just let it go by they'd let the timer run out they just give up and then these other people who had the better attributional style where things were impersonal, impermanent, and isolated to the specific event or the specific problem that they struggled with were able to look at the new problem that was solvable and immediately see that there was a solution and act on it. Um, and that, that, yeah, it comes down to just those, those deep traits of how you explain difficult events to yourself and how you interpret the world around you. It's a storytelling exercise. It's, it's the story you tell yourself about who you are and how the world works for you. And that comes down to those, um, those other factors that you explained. Um, what was it? Adaptability. Sorry, I lost where we're at. Oh, investing in loss. That was the thing we were going to talk about. So the idea that to get better at something, you generally have to let go of your initial shorter term performance. Um, so let's say for me, I was learning to swim. 
and I had my terrible swimming technique that kind of sort of worked, but for me to learn how to improve it, even though I was still like the slowest guy in the pool, if I was going to learn to adopt a new, better technique, I was going to have to break something down, probably slow the stroke down even more and make myself even slower in order to integrate a new aspect of that technique, which was eventually going to allow me to become better and faster and more efficient. But in order to do that, I had to let go of my current performance and practice something else that was going to make me look and feel worse for a small amount of time. Um, there's a, there's a complexity concept called exploit and explore like this back and forth dynamic between making the most of what you presently have and letting go of present exploitation of, of like, say, getting money from an asset if you're in a business, um, using a sales network, something like that, um, and letting go of that in order to develop a new asset that you can't currently exploit. So making a this new major, business. If I can pause you on this, because, you know, this whole thing, like people in business should really write this down because this is a big hurdle for a lot of people in business. They're so concerned about how they look because this actually like really intertwines with that whole uh, concept of validation, right? Yeah. You, you don't, you know, it, it almost is like humbling yourself, right? If you can yeah. just humble yourself to say like, I'm in a learning phase right now, I'm in a building phase and as I'm building these necessary skills, I have to put myself out there. I can't care what other people are thinking about me. And even if I don't get results, you know, do I still have the, the, the courage to continue working on it, even if the results aren't there? Because I know they will be there if I continue going for a long period of time. So Craig, I have a question for you. Can that be learned? Can people learn that skill? Is it patience? Is it, what, what are we calling this? This actual skill of just taking the small loss so that you can get a higher gain. Um, I, I think the first factor, like if you go to like the thing before the thing is going to be a growth mindset. Yes. And this is another universal thing that's in, in any field is extremely important. And it's it's another first factor where if you don't have this, you're you're stuck, you're going to struggle. Um, and a growth mindset means that you view the world or you view challenges and setbacks as a necessary part of a learning process or a necessary part of life and development in itself. Um, so you embrace negative feedback and challenges and, and setbacks as part of the process and a necessary part of the process where, and, and you believe fundamentally that what you are or what you have is changeable, that you're not born and you're just stuck with one set of characteristics or talents or behavioral traits that your intelligence, your skill is not fixed. It's, it's a changeable, growable thing and that there's a knowable, learnable process for doing that, for becoming better at whatever it is you're doing. And that that process involves struggle where the opposite end of that is a fixed mindset, which means that you believe that you're born with whatever you've got and that it's not going to change that when you go and do something, 
Um, say you go into a sales call and you're trying to close a sale. Your ability to close that sale is based on just some fixed trait that you have. It's on who you fundamentally are and there's nothing you can do to change it or improve it. So that what happens in that sale is just a reflection of your identity and who you are as a person. And that if it goes badly, that's not something that you can learn from. That's just you just embarrassed yourself in front of the world in some way and you should hide that and you should avoid anything that makes you struggle or look bad because it's revealing that you're fundamentally flawed as a person because it's your identity is directly entwined with your immediate performance, which means that you should never perform poorly because that reflects negatively on your identity and who you are as a person. And if you avoid anything that makes you perform poorly, which means you're avoiding anything that's at the edge of your ability, then you're avoiding anything that is a growth opportunity that, that would allow you to learn and develop as a person or as a businessman or, or as an operator or as anything like that. Um, you dropped so that's another gold nugget. And I don't know if anyone caught that. Um, but you said, and I, I wrote this down um, for what you were talking about where uh, it talks about like your, your performance and when you say it's at the edge of your ability mm -hmm. please break that down this is so powerful because people always think like well i either have it or i don't you know i'm just not sales i can't do it no it's at the edge of your ability what do you mean by that yeah that that loops back to some of the chaos stuff and adaptability and and the principle there is that we're most adaptable at the edge of chaos or at the edge of our ability so learning and growth takes place where we're generally successful but we have to struggle for that success it's earned success um, so if you're doing something like um, if there's a say a sales process that's really routine really easy and you can just sleepwalk your way through it you're always going to succeed but you're not struggling in any way. It's just pushing the buttons, um, going through the motions. You're not, you're not challenging yourself. You're completely in your comfort zone. You're never going to get better at anything. You're just doing that thing over and over. And then if you were to go to the other end of the spectrum and give yourself something that's completely outside of your ability where you just completely crash and burn, there's not even like any useful foothold of success for you to look at, like to, to know that I can do this thing better. I was okay at this. I can get better here. If you just completely crush yourself, you're not going to learn anything there either because there's nothing to hold on to. So you're most adaptable right at the edge, right at the edge of your ability where you're really uncomfortable, but you're able to earn success or struggle for it most of the time. You're making small mistakes and you're learning from them, but you're not completely crushed. And that's that's a fundamental thing in, in just learning and skill acquisition in general. Um, even if you're learning, say, a language, if you learn a word in Spanish or whatever, um, if you learn one word and you know it really well, like you know the word for bathroom in Spanish is baño, you could say that word a hundred times over and over and over. And if it's easy for you to recall it and you say it again and again, then a year from now, you haven't really gotten any better at, at anything. Um, but if there's something that interferes with your ability to recall that word, but you still struggle to find it, like say you put yourself in an uncomfortable setting or you're in a foreign country where you have to figure this out and you struggle really hard to find the words to communicate this thing, but you still mostly get there. Um, then you're going to recall or remember those words better in the future. Like your ability to learn, to actually 
improve the baseline of what you know is dependent on how hard you struggle to do that thing, to get that repetition. So if it's an easy repetition, it didn't cost you anything. It was just like going through the motions. You've learned nothing. You haven't pushed yourself forward. You haven't changed your baseline. But if you struggle for it and you work really, really hard to get it, and there are specific things that make it more difficult for you to get it, like an interference effect, where you're trying to learn two different words that are very similar, and you have to try to remember which one is which, that actually improves your ability to recall that word in the future and you've moved yourself forward, like improved your baseline. And that's the same in any other learning environment. If you're in a, if you're in a sales pitch, if you're in a, if you're in a, a business setting, if you're doing something like you're carrying out a skill, like with one of the companies I founded, we did a lot of fundraising where we'd go into a boardroom with our little pitch deck and stuff. And we'd explain the company and we try to get someone to give us money. Um, we would run my uh, co-founder in that was another special operations guy. So we had the same approach where we would debrief immediately and we'd look for all of the negative feedback and things to improve. And we would go into these pitch meetings and, and we would run through them as best as we could. And then as soon as they were over, we would debrief them and look for all of the things we could have done better. And then we would practice those specific things so that we, we focused on the areas where we struggled and we would work to improve those things. And over time, we got really good at pitching. Um, and I've like left that company now. I, I do BTE and other things. Um, but that company, they just closed a $5 million A round. They're valued around 30 million. Like they've got money from all over the place, like Tim Draper, guys who have invested in Tesla, people like that. Um, and that company, and we started with nothing. We we're guys who were like, started this on credit cards and, and we built it by learning quickly by facing errors and struggling through the things that we, that we had a hard time with when we began, so, yeah, it, it comes down to that growth mindset and I guess the power of yet, the word yet in your internal narrative or your explanatory style. One of the key factors that tips you left or right between are you going to get better at this over time? Or are you going to stay stuck and never improve is just your use of the word yet, which is I don't know how to swim yet. I don't know how to pitch this business yet. I don't know how to close this sale yet. And it's your use of that word that opens up the future of possibility for you, the ability to learn new things and develop this skill. And in research on learning or skill acquisition, the rate at which you learn or your initial talent at something has almost nothing to do with how good you become at it in the future, how good you eventually get. So even if you struggle at it more than everyone else around you, you're still not limited in how good you're going to get. You can still surpass that entire field or most of that field if you just keep going. And it's that ability to just keep going despite all this negative feedback, despite looking and feeling dumb that is going to set your initial or your long-term success. So that's, that's that growth so mindset thing again. When you say that rate of learning, because this brings it to the validation point where people, as they're learning, they're looking to the left and the right and saying like, they're measuring themselves up against other people. Like, oh, do you get it? I still don't get it yet. And then, you know, that, that it, they become like a defeatist, like, oh, this is not for me. And then they quit. Mm -hmm. And there's a portion in your book where you really dive into this, this quitting of when people quit. And when people are in buds or people are in hell week, you know, they don't go, they're not in the hardest task in that moment and quit. It's like the, you said the words that you said were, they quit in droves on Monday. On and Monday I just, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think this is so powerful because so many people quit. You haven't even begun. Right. And, and what is driving that you talk about that, that load that people bear and you talk about you have to have that ability to cope faster and adapt faster so that you can, you know, you're not, you're not bearing more weight from not dealing with all those stresses, right? The, the load that you're bearing starts to lighten up because you cope with it and you set it aside and you move on and you're working on it instead of like, you know, it's weighing on you, it's weighing on you. And then when you get home and you're all by yourself, you're like, this isn't for me. I'm just going to quit. Right. Yeah. So if you can explain that, you know, talk about why it's so important for, as you're going through a difficult, it could be a presentation for us, just like in that moment where you're pitching to that company, you know, you have to go back and not think about, you know, my rate of learning compared to other people, but I love what you're saying about this negativity. People are like positive, positive, keep it positive. I'm like, no, tell me what I suck at. Tell me where I can improve. What do I need to do to get better at my craft? And so Mm -hmm. this is powerful stuff because if you don't, if you're running away from negativity, how do you get better? You know, how do you improve yourself? And I love that you're Mm. saying can't because that's, that's the reality. That's the truth. So talk about this quitting time, because are we in an age where people are just quitters? Like they're just, is it because of validation? Because we're so concerned about how we look and we're so concerned about our rate of learning compared to other people. But really what you nailed in there is that actually people quit, you know, on Monday, that's where they're quitting in droves. And if you can just, you said this in our, in our meeting with the team, just make it to lunch. Yeah. 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 And that's, so it, it's another one where two different people can have the same, go through the same event and have a completely different experience of it because of the perceptions that they have and the stories that they tell themselves. Um, and that skill you just brought up compartmentalization is one of the ways to do that because Two people, same experience, different stress response. Um, Your stress response is not a direct reflection of the event that you're in. It's a reflection of the story that you tell and how you process it in your head. It's an opinion and you can change your opinion. Um, And a lot of that comes down to your thoughts. You can't really change your feelings. Like if you feel sad, happy, stressed out, but you can change your thoughts. And what happens in your head eventually happens in your bloodstream. Your thoughts Mm -hmm. make your feelings. You can't control your feelings, but you can control your thoughts. Um, And that comes down to specific mental skills and how you process events, how you process stress or negative feedback. And there are two variables that are really important in there, and that's your sense of predictability and control. And basically, the higher those things are, the lower your stress response is going to be. The lower they are, the higher your stress response. So if you lose predictability and control, um, you're going to blow up. You're going to feel really stressed out. And the important part of that is it's your perception of predictability and control. It's not the actual presence of it measured in some objective way. It's just how you tell yourself, like the story you tell yourself about the level of predictability and control that you have. And in any stressful event, the people who have higher levels of perceived predictability and control 
are just focusing on different things and, and they're focusing on the things that they can control or their own reflection of their perception of their ability. So they're saying, if you use special ops selection, like I was a SWIC guy, which is a different special program. And then I went through, I was a bud student for four months in the middle and went back to the SWIC program and you go through a lot of really difficult events where they just try to ruin your life. Like they're going to try to move the goalpost constantly. There's a terrible sense of ambiguity where every time you think something's almost over, they tell you to do it again faster. Um, and you have, you have, there's no anchor that you have other than knowing that the sun's eventually going to come up. If you can remember that part, that helps, but you have no external sense of predictability or control. There's nothing in the course itself that you have control over. You can't stop an event. You can't make them stop making you do push-ups. You can't, you can't like decide that this is going to end as soon as you're really, really cold. Um, but what you can do is know that you have in your own head, the ability to keep going regardless of what happens, or, you know, that you're willing to keep going or give everything that there is until you cross a physical line until you actually black out from exertion or you lose consciousness from hypothermia or something like that. Like, you know, that you have everything it takes to go up to that line. And the truth is that that line's never really going to come. Like they, they design these courses so that you're just at the limits of your physical abilities. But if you look at the statistics, um, people quit a lot. The washout rate is really high. It's anywhere from like 65 to 90%, but the people are quitting voluntarily. They're not leaving because they broke their bones, because they tore their muscles, because they were so hypothermic that they had to be hospitalized. They're not drowning usually. Um, they're leaving because they voluntarily leave. They make the decision to quit. So they're within their physio physiological limits. It's just that somewhere in their head, they decide that they can't keep doing it anymore. And the people who don't, the people who decide that they have what it takes, um, are just shifting their perception of what it is that they have to deal with. And a lot of, a lot of that come down, comes down to those skills of compartmentalization, which is your ability to recognize a negative experience or a negative sensation. This, say you're hypothermic or you're really stressed out or this is really difficult or, I don't know, you're, you're traveling for business. You flew in, your flight was delayed. You got in at two o'clock in the morning and you have a presentation at 7 a.m. or something like that. You when tell you yourself you're exhausted. Business, it sounds so silly. When you talk about what you it's, go through for training and then you're like, we got a late flight and we're being <laughs> a little bitch now. <laughs> but it still sucks. And say like in business, you have however many people whose livelihoods depend on this decision or in your ability to succeed in this thing. Um, you know, like if you fail out of swick or buds or something like that you're still in the navy you still have a job you're still alive you're still breathing you still have a paycheck and your kids are still gonna have breakfast like you still you there's a lot of things that are still okay your sense of self might be damaged a little bit but if you're running a company and you have a hundred employees or i don't know how many people are at lloyd agencies and you fail and you burn in and bankrupt your company you've just let down all of those people and their families. And that's a lot of weight to carry. And it's a different thing than just suffering personally. Like being hypothermic by yourself is in a way kind of a break when you think of the weight of carrying a company on your shoulders. Oh, I love um, that this. This is, <laughs> so thank you for, you're, you're more compassionate than I am. <laughs> but you know, uh, so this commission business, you know, when you get into business, whether there is no such thing as, you know, you get paid X amount regardless of whatever happens because you're so on point when that business goes out, 
everyone's finished, you know? And mm-hmm. so that, that is a lot of weight. It's kind of like a load that we carry that we've just become used to. And yeah. so like training this mindset, one thing that's helped me a lot that you touch on in this chapter is just, you gave a really funny example of, you know, when you go to the gym and people are only working out at those certain times where everyone's there so they can watch mm-hmm. them. And you ask that question, like, are you that person that works out and grunts really loud and drops the weight so everyone can see you? Or are you the kind of person that works out when no one is watching, you know, and, and you're doing the things and you almost, you train a mentality of what you said, like, it's not a workout, it's training that I'm doing for myself. And if business people can look at it, like, don't ever look at it where you're, you're carrying that load. Like I got to perform. I got to show up for my people. No, you'll show up because you're training to get better and better and better every day. So talk about that mindset. And then if you can tie it into that locus of control, when people Mm -hmm. have an internal locus of control versus an external and how that would directly affect if you keep going or if you quit. Yeah, there's a few different phrases that we use to describe that that difference, and it it does exploit and explore is one of them. Um, that usually applies more to like the overall processes. We could also think of it as development or display. Are you developing yourself or developing something, or are you displaying what you already have? And there are times for both. Like if you're going into a sales pitch to close a deal that's going to make the future of your company, that's a display time. Like that's time to like put it all in a line, do everything you can. But then there are probably a lot of other smaller presentations or practices within your own company. Like say you're just role-playing sales processes and rejections and stuff in your own company. Like that's not a time to show off and try to be as good as you can be at this one thing and, and just show what you already have. That's a time to deliberately put yourself in positions where you're going to struggle and make small mistakes and get better, where you're developing a skill. You'll display it later, but you're developing it then. Or you could call this the difference between practice and performance. You know, if you're a sports team, you have practices. You're not trying to show off and be the best whatever in that practice. You're trying to find your own vulnerabilities and develop them and slow yourself down and invest in loss and become better at that thing in the learning environment so that when you go to the game and it's time to perform, then you have a higher foundation or a higher baseline to work from. Um, where I lost my train of thought. We have so many different concepts yeah, bouncing around here. Internal right locus of control. Internal locus of control. And that's another one. Um, it's a fairly universal factor. It's somewhat like conscientiousness um, where someone with an internal locus of control sees the world as they're an active participant in the world and their decisions and actions control their course through life or through the world. Um, they're, they're swimming. They're not just floating with the current. And where someone with an external locus of control sees the world as happening to them, they're basically a passive victim or a bystander in their own life. And when something bad happens, um, you'll see this in the stories that they tell and, and in small like changes in their language. Like, say I've got a client who's training to go to a selection course. I might have a guy who says, I hurt my back this morning. I hurt my back. Where you might have another guy who says, my back started hurting this morning. 
where he's externalizing it. And it's not, it's not something that he did that he had control over that he could change and improve on. It's something that happened to him. It's like he got struck by lightning. My back hurt me. And, and you see that it's a small difference in language and internal narrative, but it makes a huge difference in someone's course through life, like how much ownership they take over their own situation, over their own path. And, and those with, you see this really quickly in the selection programs, those with an internal locus of control who are responsible for their own path and also responsible for their own mistakes and failures are a lot more resilient and a lot more capable of learning and adapting. Where if you have someone who is has heavily externalized their locus of control and everything just happens to them, like that sale didn't work out. Um, you know, like my my sales process just failed me. You know, it, it's something someone else's problem. Something else didn't work. Where they're just kind of the the passive observer of what's happening around them and the world is happening to them. They're not going to learn. They're not going to embrace any negative feedback. They're not going to use it to become better because it doesn't matter because whatever happens to them is just determined by outside events. Anyway, um, that person is stuck and, and you can see that really quickly and how, how fast someone learns or adapts. And the interesting thing of that is someone with an external locus of control is often using that as a protective mechanism. They're using it to protect their ego and feel better about themselves. So if something bad happens and it's not their fault, then it's okay, right? Because there's nothing you could do about it. It's just something that happened. And then you're okay. Your sense of identity is still stable. But the problem is that you're also never going to grow. It's the hermit crab metaphor um, that we talked about a long time ago. Yes. Um, Josh Whiteskin uses this in his book about learning to become uh he was the world's best chess player for a while he became a world champion in another martial art um and and his analogy is hermit crabs where hermit crabs as they grow their physical body grows and they reach a point where the shell that they're in that doesn't grow is too small and for a brief period of time they're going to have to abandon that shell and go search for a new one and find a new one and work their way into that and in that transitory period between the old shell that was too small that was restricting their growth and finding the new one that, that gives them enough room to continue growing, they're basically naked in the world and they're vulnerable. And there are people who avoid making that switch. They'll never leave that one comfortable shell. And that's their stable identity. That's where anything bad that happens is happening because of outside events. It's not something that I controlled or I had anything to do with. And they stay stuck inside that little comfort zone. And they'll never leave it. They'll never expose themselves to injury or predators or anything bad happening. And they, they're comfortable, but they're also stagnant. And they're probably not happy. They're not deeply fulfilled. They're not living their life to its potential. They're just staying comfortable. Um, and Whiteskin uses that metaphor of, of the hermit crab or the, the, the hermit crab who has to be anorexic and avoid growth and avoid becoming any bigger, or any better, or any stronger, because that's going to mean becoming vulnerable. And that's another internal locus of control thing where you're able to say, like, I'm going to become vulnerable and I'm going to stumble and look bad and do something that's beyond my current abilities and go risk something in order to grow and become better and bigger and stronger. And it's going to be difficult. And it's going to be embarrassing. Um, and the person with an internal locus of control is more okay with looking bad because it means that they're getting better. And, and that's the stability of ego or, or the separation of immediate performance from your sense of self and who you are as a person. So it's error embracing is the word for it um, in, in the I research, your ability to find an error and be like, this is my mistake and I'm going to own it and I'm going to find a way to improve it.
I love this. I think, you know, it, with that whole growth mindset concept, I think um, it is so powerful. Like as I'm raising children, I'm constantly aware of what I'm putting into their minds because, you know, when I read about that from Carol Dweck and it says like, you know, the worst thing you could almost tell a child is that you are smart because you yeah. know, then when they fail a test, they're like, well, I'm not smart. I wasn't smart. No, I'm dumb. And then they just have this annihilistic behavior of like, school's <laughs> not for me. I can't do this. I'm dumb. And it's like, no, you know, I actually bought a book where it teaches children how to develop a growth mindset. And it asks the children a series of questions. And one of them is like, if you uh, fail at something, what do you do? And then it gives them options. Do you keep going? Do you try again? Or do you just stop? And I like did this on our children, but I really think this is something every person should do for themselves, you know, to assess mm -hmm. because the reality is, is we don't live in a book, right? And you do have to put yourself out there. This is why I love business, Craig, because what business did for me was it took me out of a shell like you wouldn't believe. People think, you know, medicine is something that's uncomfortable, but that's all I knew my whole life. And when I came into business, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I almost wanted to hide and just get good. But I, the, the, the thing that saved me, you know what it is? It's that I'm a student that I really look at everything and I look at everyone and say, I can learn from you. And if I just put my head down and keep learning and keep learning, I, I understand like once I realize that I'm a student and then the second thing that set me free, I stopped caring what anyone thought about me. And I was just like, you know, it became a really exciting place to exist in because, you know, that's when you look at the world with different eyes. So your message is just so powerful. And I, I almost feel like I want to have like a three hour conversation with you. And, and today I really just kind of wanted to whet the appetite for really what it takes to be extraordinary. When your book comes out, you know, I'm going to be promoting it because I really feel like everyone needs to get their hands on your book but not because you sit there and you read it, but it, it's really a textbook that you've written. It's a reference guide. And I love the name of your company, Building the Elite, because the, the reality is, is that when you think of an elite, you think like, okay, well, you have a silver spoon, you have an advantage over me. <laughs> but the reality is, is that they were built to become elite. You know, they were, yeah. they were built to get to that place. And the book you mentioned that, you know, when you're talking about things that have control over you, look at someone like Warren Buffett. He has a say on how the world works right now. And for us, maybe that don't have that say, what we always have to remember is that Warren Buffett didn't start off that way. He started off making those investments and building his name and building it and building it. So, you know, the guy is in his eighties now and yeah, the world wants to know, what do you think, Warren? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that didn't happen overnight. And just to encourage people to understand, listen, that's what it is. And you have that story. Was his name Rory, who was yeah, a hubby kid? Is, if you can, yeah, it's a, you can finish with this story, I love this story because it just goes to show it has nothing to do with necessarily what's on the outside. Like if the inside is good, uh, you're, you're set up for success. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, and there is there are a lot of stories like his, and I think that's that's what's so interesting about that. But Rory, um, it's a pseudonym because I I don't know how his family would feel about me using his real name. But Rory was with me in the the brown shirt program in in Buds. Um, I was there as a SWIC student. Rory was going through to be a SEAL. And Rory called himself the fattest kid to ever go through Bud's. And by by like normal civilian standards, he would be like maybe a little chubby. But by Bud standards, he was the fat kid. Um, and he was he was a really good swimmer. He was good at good at or good enough at a lot of other things. But when it came to running, he was just terrible, and he struggled so much. Um, and he we were in the brown shirts program because I'd failed to swim in Swick and he'd failed uh, his run times in second phase of Buds. So he was there to learn to run better and I was there to learn to swim better. And uh, he was always at the back of the pack in every single run that we did, just at maximum pain, maximum discomfort, just wheezing his way along back there. And he and I were at the it's called the Surf Mart, like the Navy version of a convenience store one day. And they have all the uniform stuff where you go and buy like your boot polish or whatever. And they had a bunch of uniform insignia. And and I looked over and Rory was just standing in front of this wall, motionless, staring at this seal trident. And and I had enough time to walk up to him and be like, like, are you having a stroke? <laughs> Why are you holding so still? And and he just goes, fuck, I want one of those. Just talking about the SEAL Trident, like his one purpose in life was to get this pin. And that's the only thing he was going to live for. And and he did. And and in these programs, you see so many people fail out. And so many of them are really talented athletes. The guys who show up and they look like they should be on the covers of fitness magazines. They're people who are D1 athletes. They're, they were competitive triathletes before they showed up. They have the physical side, but they don't have the mental or the emotional side. They're not willing to suffer and they can't tolerate ambiguity and they don't have all these other skills that Rory did. And he suffered his way through. He, he rolled back into his program or class back up with second phase. He passed his run for second phase by a couple of seconds. And then in third phase, the time got harder and he still suffered his way through, got better and better and passed his third phase runtime. And I saw him like a year later, um, I was in the finishing program for SWIC and he was walking down the street wearing his trident and he'd earned it. And in that time that he'd earned it, half the people in his class had quit, had given up and they were all faster than him. They're all better runners than him. And every one of them went away um, because they weren't willing to suffer in the way that he was. And they weren't able to learn in the way that he was like he was able to improve because he was willing to face the thing that he sucked at. Like he very openly said, I'm the fattest kid here. I'm going to be really bad at this. Everybody likes me when it's like hell week and we're all cold and they want to be near the fat kid and stay warm. But he was, he was willing to be the worst one there and keep going and keep getting better. And like we said at the beginning of this, like the level of potential you eventually reach has nothing to do with where you start or how long it takes you to get there as long as you don't stop. And that's what he did. He just kept going. Yeah, but I also think he had the raw material inside, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the <laughs> mental side of it. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't manifested in what he displayed when he showed up. Totally. He didn't have the raw material to be an amazing runner on day 1 like some people are, but he had the mental raw material to suffer and to learn and to adapt to his environment and and face his challenges. And that's that's the part that matters, not your initial performance. Yeah. And I think that's how you become dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. because when people look at um, people like that, it's, it's, uh, you really understand that that person can become anything that they put their mind to, which is a very, very special thing. 
And so mm-hmm. I love that we broke this down. I think we accomplished the impossible here today where we took that chapter and we tied it in so nicely, but you are a joy to speak to all the time. I feel like you're an amazing person. I wish like massive amounts of abundance for you. And if there's anything <laughs> I could ever do to help you or to, you know, just to bring anything great your way, like you deserve it. And I, I hope you <laughs> know that. I hope you know how amazing you are in terms of just the the depth of your knowledge. You know, I think a lot of people um, today are just so surface and I'm just tired of it, you know, and this is why I created this group for people that want more than just like an Instagram mm-hmm. meme. Oh, that sounds cool. You yeah. know, like go deeper because that's how you become dangerous. Right. So, yeah. you know, I thank you for your time. Where can people find you um, on Instagram to just like, you know, get more information about what you do, your, your stuff is, and this is, man, I'm, I'm giving the goods here. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you covered, I mean, we've covered like part of one chapter out of a, what's going to be a 20 chapter book. Like as Sabrina was saying, we're, our book is sold out right now. We're printing a second edition that's updated and expanded. That'll be out in early May. Um, and we, we have a fairly big social presence on Instagram. Well, small relative to some people, uh, which is at building the elite. Um, we also have our own website, obviously, which is just building the And that's where most of it lives. And if you sign up for anything there, you'll get notified as soon as the, the third printing of the book now is back in stock and we're shipping that. Um, we're also working on some digital training courses. We have a training app that's coming up and that's going to have like a mental skills development program and separate courses you can go through, um, that put this kind of stuff, what we just talked about into a learnable practice oriented format so that you can develop things like an internal locus of control and, and a better explanatory style and all these concepts, because as, as we've just demonstrated, there are a lot of them and they all kind of weave together and yeah. there's a lot of different pieces that you have to put together. Yes. I love this. Okay. So, you know, thank you for your time. Your time is incredibly valuable. And I just really appreciate you sharing with the audience, just really the, the, the depth of what it takes to build that like warrior mentality, which you really just, you know, you hit it right on. So thank you, Craig. Thank you. Always such an honor and privilege to talk to you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you do to allow me to live the way I get to live in the greatest country in the entire world. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. I always enjoy talking with you. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to stand alone. If you like what you hear, I'd love if you leave a five-star review to keep the conversation going. You can find me at I am Sabrina Lloyd or at Lloyd agencies on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you.